This is John Halsman, and welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet that we live on and the new era that we find ourselves in. Well, what else could we be talking about today but Ukraine, given all that's going on? But I want to look at this from a different angle. Again, let's pretend for a second we're Vladimir Putin sitting in the Kremlin and we're looking out and deciding whether to invade Ukraine or not. What do we see? We have a putative alliance with China. Uh, Certainly we are tilting toward them and they will cause us no difficulties. Uh, They may support us. They may not at the UN. They may be embarrassed by our invasion. They may not, but they're not actively against us in any way. So no problem there. Of the other great powers... Um, India and Japan are no concern because they're, of course, worried about getting through the day and dealing with their challenges in the Indo-Pacific, where most of the risks world, uh, most of the risk in the world, and most of the reward in the world in terms of economic growth um, is coming, and most of the risk in terms of the Sino-American Cold War. So they're preoccupied and far away. So who are we dealing with? Who can stand in our way? Uh, in dealing with Ukraine. Well, only two entities have that possibility. The United States, long the guarantor of European security, even though this has infantilized Europe to a large extent and has been dangerous. Let's remember that when NATO was started, Eisenhower said, although the treaty obligation, the Article 5 commitment to defend Europe should remain, after a few years, he guessed around 10, American troops should be withdrawn from NATO because Europe would then be economically able to take care of itself. Of course, this hasn't happened. Instead, we've had infantilization where Europeans sit in cafes angry about American dominance, even as they bask in the safety that we provide them. I feel like Colonel Jessup and a few good men. I stand on the wall and you resent the very freedom I give you to. I've used that speech because it's apt and describes what's wrong with Europe. It has been infantilized. And defense spending numbers over the last 30 years show this. Of the major European powers, Spain spends laughable money on defense, as does Italy. In fact, my football team could take both those countries. Poland spends a fair bit trying to catch up in a crash course because they're afraid of the Russian bear, but starting at a very low level. And France and Britain are the only two that can do full-spectrum military operations from high-end warfighting to low-end peacekeeping, and spend the 2% that NATO requires. The British spend more than this, 2.3 or 2.4% of GDP, and the French 2% on the button, but they do spend it, and the French military is quite first-rate. This leaves Germany. Always we come back to Germany. It is the black hole standing in the way of the EU doing anything. And Germany is the problem here. Germany spends now up to, and I can't believe I'm using the word up, up to about 1.5% of GDP on defense, though this has been far lower in the past. And the Germans, more than anyone, are free riding off the rest of us, are free riding off the United States and the other major NATO allies. And this is not sustainable when Germany is undoubtedly the economic motor of Europe. And in fact, every American president who's a Wilsonian, a naive center-left Wilsonian, comes to office saying the same thing, as do naive center-left Wilsonians at the Council on Foreign Relations, where I go. Once we're in power, we will pivot our relationship away from the Anglosphere and do more with Germany. 
Look at those GDP numbers. Look at that export-driven economy. Everything will be great. They believe in a, naively in my view, in a rules-based order where international institutions are what matter. And these are the people we want to work with. We see eye to eye on everything. What they leave out of this are two or actually three basic points. One, German defense spending. Germans have this naive utopian view post-Hitler that the military has no efficacy in the world. I remember once doing an interview in Germany for a bunch of young newspaper correspondents who were brought together. And one of the Germans came in and said, in the most smarmy Spiegel-like, I think he did work at Spiegel, uh, center left tones possible, he made a speech and then asked me a question, which is how German media works. And he said, force has never had any use in the international community. Why does America spend so much on its army? The older Germans rolled their eyes. I gave them credit and they looked at me and I said, Force worked just fine at Normandy. These people really don't see that force remains one of the motive tools used in foreign policy. Along with economic power and cultural power, there's military power. You can't wish it away because you don't like it. And the idea that force, that this, this kid who had a job at Spiegel, which is one of the more premier newspapers in Germany, so obviously they think he's good or can think, which is extraordinary, the idea that this kid thought force had no role in the world and all the other young correspondents were nodding shows a total lack of understanding of history and foreign policy and, frankly, the human condition that he believed this. And I thought I'd mention Normandy because there's an example where force and blood and sacrifice liberated Europe from Nazi control. I can't think of a better use of force or a more noble use of force. Force is a tool. It can be used for good. It can be used for evil. But undoubtedly, it's a tool. So this is one problem with what's going on. The second problem involves Europeans, Europe and particularly Germany's suicidal energy policy. Until just now, until the invasion in Ukraine, Europe has been utterly dependent on Russian natural gas. Germany, again, the economic motor of Europe, spends one-third gets one-third of its gas directly from Gazprom and Russia. The other two major suppliers are Algeria, also not a good political risk bet, really, in the long run, and Norway, which is safe as houses. Norway's great. And these three provide Germany with its heating. Well, now Germany, again, like some sort of drug addict going back to its dealer and saying, give me a double dose, has doubled down on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, the multi-billion dollar decade-long in construction pipeline from Russia directly to Germany, bypassing Ukraine, getting any transit fees through pipelines. Instead, this goes through the ocean, the North Sea. This goes there, the Balts, the Baltic Sea, pardon me. This goes through there, and they're doubling their dependence on Russia. And until literally yesterday, the Germans were prepared to go ahead with this. And in fact, the idiotic government of Angela Merkel, well, when will anyone see this historically correctly, the idiotic government of Angela Merkel was for doubling down on doing this, more and more and more dependence. And there was a finding by the German government that doubling down on Nord Stream 2 did not hurt Europe's energy security. They signed a paper saying this, and I want to repeat this, that Nord Stream 2 did not hurt Germany's energy security until yesterday, yesterday, when Robert Habeck, the Green leader, had the good sense to say, 
Well, circumstances have changed. Well, they have, but they haven't, and that they should have realized this a decade ago, but better late than never, and said, well, no, maybe it does hurt energy security. In between, everyone, their aunt and uncle, told the Germans not to do this. The French government expressed its reservations. The Polish government expressed its reservations. God bless them, the European Commission expressed their reservations. The Americans under Donald Trump expressed their reservations only to be told when Biden came in, ah, this is a fight I'm not going to have. Let the Germans be dependent on Russian gas. One of the dumbest things Biden has done, and there are an awful lot of things there to choose from. Incredible that he didn't pick a fight over this. So we have Germany already with one third of its gas coming from Russia. It's decided to double down on this. And, 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 what is, and what happens? We expect them to be brave, stalwart, and fight for Western values over Ukraine, to put real sanctions onto the Kremlin, given the situation, when Putin can flick a switch and things get very cold, very fast in Germany. Well, of course not. Of course not. They are utterly dependent, suicidally dependent on Russian gas, and they're about to double down on this dependence, and they think this is a good idea until yesterday. Unbelievable. And now the only way out of this is to scramble to try to make up for this because former President Medvedev, who's involved in the Nord Stream 2 pipeline issue, said, well, welcome to the brave new world, Germany. Your gas prices are going to double. And of course, if this happens, and it certainly they will go up, they'll spike upward, a very fragile European economy will go into recession if they're not very, very careful because of inflation going through the roof, because energy prices go through the roof, because of this suicidal dependence. Again, what the Germans did was to take political risk out of energy policy. And if you take political risk out of energy policy, meaning you don't care where your source of energy comes from, you're in for a world of hurt because it's not the same getting natural gas from Norway as it is from getting it from Russia, as we're just finding out. Again, my entire life's work. This is why you hire political risk firms to deal with this very issue. So now everyone's running around like headless chickens trying to save the Germans from themselves. Sound familiar? It is. And President Biden rightly recently had the Qatari government in, and they're trying, which are both major natural gas suppliers. And we've talked about trying to make Germany less dependent on Russian gas. I played a war game for the European Commission five or six years ago, uh, looking at this very issue. And surprise, surprise, the outcome of the game was, of course, you're not going to do away with Russian supply. You diversify Russian supply. And in diversifying from Russian supply, guess what you get? You get a safer, more confident, more outward-looking German foreign policy. If you're not dependent on the Russians, you can be a lot braver and you have a lot more options. Specifically in the game, we talked about bringing more Qatari natural gas on. The Gulf state is a longstanding Western ally. And with the shale revolution, we talked about bringing American liquefied natural gas online in Europe, which would require the building of ports, but, but transit ports. But this certainly could be done and was worth doing to diversify away, even as you did more with Norway and in the short run or medium run with Algeria. So Russia goes from 33% to say around 15 to 20%, and that is utterly manageable. And of course, the Europeans, the game was very good, very well played. 
Uh, they, they certainly knew their stuff. They thanked me profusely. They were very nice. They paid me promptly, and nothing happened. And here we are. This is where war games and political risk have real efficacy. Seeing things like this that everyone should see but somehow misses and seeing them ahead of time, and they absolutely didn't do this, and by absolutely not doing this, we now have a huge problem where Putin could trigger a major recession in Europe by doubling gas prices, which certainly he's going to do now that Nord Stream 2 is offline. And again, the problem is Germany and its energy policy. So militarily, the Germans have never punched their weight. And in fact, doubt many of them, including members of the ruling SPD, doubt the use of force has any efficacy in the world, as though the world were populated only by rabbits where carrots work, but there's no need for sticks. Say what you want, but Vladimir Putin is not a rabbit. He's a tiger. and You need a gun. And the fact that they don't see this shows their ridiculous naivete in dealing with the world. And then the third issue is that because of this mercantilist policy, the number one trading partner of Germany for the last four or five years has been China. Uh, the number one gas, their import gas importer is Russia. And it's no wonder that Germany has developed a mercantilist, corporatist, neutralist foreign policy that, of course, then skews all of Europe into utter incoherence. Utter incoherence. And if Germany is neutralist and France is Gaullist and Italy is traditionally Atlanticist under Draghi, along with the Northern Europeans, the Eastern Europeans, and the Italians and Spanish don't care very much, and Britain has left the scene to rejoin the Anglosphere as it should, when you add all this together, you get a whole lot of nothing. You get utter incoherence in Europe. And what do we have right now? Utter incoherence in Europe. In terms of sanctions, they can't figure out what to do with the Austrians and the Italians lagging behind with the Germans saying, oh, no, let's do sanctions on Putin incrementally, slowly. Uh, that's the key. And everyone else, including Poland and the Baltics, pushing for quicker and the French trying to keep everyone on the same page. We have a whole lot of nothing. And this shows over and over again. And the basic problem is Germany. If the biggest piece on the European chessboard is isolationist, you cannot have a coherent internationalist foreign policy. It just cannot be done. And so Europe is hamstrung from this. And Putin, in his icy realism, he's a Machiavellian realist, whereas we here in the uh, podcast are ethical realists, but I know a realist when I see it. Putin knows all this, sees all this, and sees that America isn't going to fight for Ukraine, rightly so, because it's not a, it's, we have no interest there to fight for, that it's not a NATO ally, and that he can do pretty much as he pleases as America pivots to the Indo-Pacific, is preoccupied, will put on serious sanctions, but that's it. And that's a hit he can take by pivoting more to China. And he looks at Europe and he sees this black hole, which is Germany. And because of this black hole, which is Germany, he sees an opportunity. He sees a chance to move late in his reign to restore strategic depth to Russia by dominating the satellite countries around him, by having greater sway in the Balkans, making Belarus, Ukraine, and the Caucasus states after the Azerbaijani-Armenian War firmly in line. These three areas are buffers now. He's restored strategic depth to Russia, which has been the czarist Russian play since Charles XII of Sweden invaded in the 18th century. Napoleon in the 19th, 
and the Kaiser and Hitler in the 20th. You trained land for time and wait for winter to come. And it's worked brilliantly well four times. Putin has secured his sphere of influence, making Russia, if not a superpower, a great power. And he's done so because of Europe and particularly Germany's utter incoherence. And that's what's going on here. Beneath all this, this is how potent looks at the world, and the European Union has proven itself yet again because of Germany, particularly not fit for purpose in the challenging new great power era that we live in. That's what's really going on beneath the scenes in Ukraine. Hope you enjoyed this Around the World in 20 Minutes. Uh, for those of you who haven't subscribed yet, please do so. So many of you have, and let me say we are gratified. And we are, as you know, devoting ourselves to being a full-time newspaper now. Most days when we don't have Ukraine dominating, Monday is book serialization. Next week is the last issue of The Godfather Doctrine. Then we're going to start on another book. Not sure what's next, but probably ethical realism. One of the greatest hits would be next. Tuesday is usually the culture day. We've had some great ones recently where we've looked at La Ventura, and European art house films, and Monica Vitti, the luminous Italian actress who just died, why Hemingway is important, and the Beatles' magical middle years. Wednesday is always around the world in 20 minutes, our podcast here with you, which is the flagship of what we do. Thursday is The Society with my great friend and colleague, J.L. Ryder, looking at American particularly, but also broader Western social issues. And our new exciting column for Friday is The Politics with my great friend, Publius, writing on the things beneath why electoral movements happen. What's going on beneath the waves that turn elections in the West for good or for ill? And I enjoyed his first one on people should not, the base ought to be brave and not become someone's base and be taken for granted, but do more on its own. We give you all that. And in return, all we ask is that you subscribe and give $70 a year or $7 a month, $70 a year or $7 a month, the 70 a year means we can devote ourselves to our little local newspaper to the world and keep going with important events and podcasts like this one. Really hope you enjoyed it. Please do give the $70 and please do subscribe. And now it's time for me to have that famous espresso as I wade through the Ukrainian news of the day. Take care and have a good one.